Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today, Dermot Turing, is the author of several fascinating books, including Prof, a biography of his famous uncle, Alan Turing, The Story of Computing, and most recently, X, Y, and Z, the real story of how Enigma was broken, published by History Press, and available on Amazon and all the usual places. Enigma was the code used by the German military during World War II. They thought it was unbreakable. Most of modern history follows the breakthroughs at Bletchley Park, once the top-secret home of the World War II codebreakers in England. But Polish intelligence was in the thick of codebreaking before the outbreak of World War II, and Dermot Turing fills in the gaps of historical knowledge in this compelling narrative of Poland's contribution to cracking the Enigma code. For everything about Dermot Turing, go to Dermot Turing. Dot com. And Dermot, welcome to the show. No, well, good day. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And, you know, this kind of subject can go on forever. It, it's so vast. Just to put it in context, how important was it to break the Enigma code? And then part two, which I know has been asked by many people, but I'd love to get your insight. Would World War II have been definitely won by the Allies without breaking the Enigma code? Okay, your second question is a tough one. The first one is, I think, a bit easier. The volume of secret messages that the German military sent to each other using the Enigma machine was absolutely vast. I mean, it's in the tens of thousands each year and in each theatre. Um, I was just looking this morning on the... National UK National Archives website where they've got some of the decrypts you can go and you can go and look them up and just for a six week period in one theatre looking at Air Force and Army material only it was something like seventeen hundred decrypts in just you know and this is just the stuff that's valuable enough to be sent to commanders in in the sent to Allied commanders in the theatre. And if you start adding that up over all the theatres, over all the months of the whole war, you get a sense as to the sheer volume of it. This was, I mean, it was absolutely vital to break this stuff because that was how we found out what the Germans were up to, ranging from tiny little, really quite boring details about sort of, you know, redeployment of middle-ranking officers to different parts of, you know, the armed forces, right up to actual battle orders and stuff that was of much more tactical use in the field. So so very, very valuable, absolutely vital that we broke it. Now, as to what difference it made, that's that's a much tougher ask. And the reason it's tougher is not because anyone is trying to deny the role that signals intelligence played during World War II. Without the whole code-breaking machine, I, I think the... Uh, official view is that the war would have dragged on for at least another two years and and uh, who knows what the outcome might have been with Germany developing its own atomic weapons and so forth. What's more difficult though is to pull out the role of Enigma specifically from the other types of code and cipher that were being broken, some of which had even more vital information in them than, than the Enigma messages themselves. So uh, th that's where I'm slightly hesitant. But, I mean, frankly, Enigma's 
kind of to use a soccer analogy it's it, it's the striker it's the guy that's scoring the goals and uh, it's the star of the show the others the others may have very important roles but enigma is is kind of it's the one we all know about and it's the one that all the commanders would have recognized as being the you know principal source and before we get into the Polish contribution, which I found fascinating in your book, and it breaks it down in, in such a dynamic narrative that it holds your interest from the beginning to the end of the book and, and gives material that I was not aware of, not that I'm a historian, but just I knew an, a lot about Bletchley Park. I knew about the Enigma machine. I knew about the contributions of signals intelligence, but I did not know about the significant contribution of the Polish codebreakers. But before we get into that, just a brief <laughs> this could go for a show in and of itself about your uncle, but his contribution <laughs> to to all of this at Bletchley Park, Alan well, Turing. Well, here, here's the here's the I think the standard narrative, and and people who go to the movies will have seen the Hollywood version of this. But the standard narrative goes something like the Brits were completely at sea on the whole Enigma problem and thought that it couldn't be broken, and then suddenly out of the blue like some sort of you know theater god descending in a machine alan turing arrives on the scene and uh, uh has this marvelous idea and out of, out of nowhere creates this amazing invention called the bomb machine and lo and behold enigma decrypts start uh, spewing out of the machine you know like there's no tomorrow you know i mean hollywood should be applauded i think for having popularized the whole story of what's actually quite a sort of technical thing that you wouldn't necessarily imagine people would find hugely interesting unless they're sort of world war ii buffs but on the other hand hollywood is also guilty of sort of simplifying things and turning most stories into the quite trite you know heroes and villains kind of idea and so they've made alan turing a hero which sort of somehow um, i think Many people would agree with me that it's kind of slightly sickly sweet the way they've <laughs> tackled, tackled that problem. Um, but what it doesn't do, that whole story, is really put the Bletchley Park effort into context. Bletchley Park didn't start from zero, and Alan Turing didn't have this sort of like idea that descended upon him from heaven and therefore managed to sort of suddenly solve the problem with no external input it was a bit more complicated than that and actually it's, i think it's a bit more interesting than that and the story of the other people who were involved makes it into what i think is rather a cracking spy story rather than something that's you know a dry story of mathematicians working out things with squared paper which it could otherwise seem like and the polish contribution was fascinating in that it started way before world war ii and the british establishment was not initially primed to embrace all of that information. And it, there, was, there was Gustav Bertrand, who is the, you call the magician in the book, who was really the, <laughs> one, one of the main go-betweens. What was his role from your point of view? Is how did he put together the pieces? He connected the Polish codebreakers with the British codebreaking establishment. Well, I, I think the answer to that lies in the sort of geopolitics of the 1930s. And where Britain was sitting at that, at that time was sort of somewhere off in the Atlantic, where it was worried about the Bolsheviks and the possibility of a sort of a red revolution. But frankly, the rise of the Nazis in Germany was 
somebody else's problem. That was happening in a place called continental Europe, which was really not something that the Brits were very excited about, and they certainly didn't want to get entangled in another continental war. But for the French and the Poles, this was a completely different matter, because if you look at the map of Europe, then clearly Germany is the sort of ham in the sandwich between those two countries, both of which felt nervous and periodically threatened by the Germans. And in particular, when Hitler came to power, the remilitarization of the country was of crucial importance. So it's not really a surprise that the French and the Poles were talking to each other about military and intelligence matters pretty much ever since the end of World War I. What changed was that, that Hitler's aggression and his sort of you know, serial takeovers of weak neighbouring countries eventually caught the attention of the Brits in really quite late. I mean, people would be surprised that it was as late as 1938 before the Brits really woke up to the idea that Hitler was something they had to take seriously. And it was at that point that the French and the character of Bertrand, as you mentioned, um, reached out to MI6 in, in the UK, to so our, the Secret Intelligence Service, to see if there was something that could be shared in terms of code-breaking intelligence between the three powers. So, that, I mean, Bertrand is the one who uh, essentially brought the... Polish codebreakers and the British codebreakers, what was to become Bletchley Park, into contact with each other and started a series of meetings that began in just after Christmas 1938. So beginning in 1939, they all met together in Paris for the first time. And it was just really in the nick of time when you think about it, with the war it was only you know a few, mo- few months away from breaking out. It is amazing. You talk in your book about who you call World War II's greatest spy. And if you read the book, you find out why, in fact, he was World War II's greatest spy. And yet, I had never heard that name before. And I I may mispronounce it, but it's Hans Thilo Schmidt. Yes. So he's a very interesting guy. His brother turned out to be a famous tank general during the war. But before that, Schmidt was basically one of those guys who felt that he deserved more money than he actually earned and looked around for ways to make a quick buck. And because his brother was quite well placed in the rump of the German army, his brother had managed to get him, get Hans Thilo, uh, a job in the Cypher Bureau in Berlin. And with that job came access to the secret safe where the secret documents were kept. And... Hans Thilo saw this opportunity, <laughs> and so one day he walks into the French embassy in Berlin and asks if he can speak to the military attaché and says, I've got access to some stuff that might interest you. <laughs> um, A lot of stuff. <laughs> the French, the, this is the most bizarre part of the story. To my mind, the most bizarre part of the story is the French actually had a procedure for dealing with walk-in spies like this. This was something that happened like quite regularly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this particular spy was clearly the cream of the crop, and what he had access to was stunningly good stuff. And it wasn't just things like documents relating to the Enigma machine, which obviously the French were extremely interested in. But it was all manner of all sorts of stuff, because 
Hans Tilo was very good at getting himself good, high-quality military connections. And for right up until after hostilities had broken out in 1939, he was able to feed the French with all sorts of stuff about technical developments in the German army, uh, strategic intentions. He revealed the direction of the attack on the British and French forces surrounded at Dunkirk. I mean, you know, just, I mean, unbelievable range of stuff, including 300 documents relating to codes and ciphers, including the famous Enigma stuff. So, I mean, really quite, really quite the most extraordinary guy. He got way, very handsomely paid for it, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure he did, especially with that lifestyle. But how is it that his name has not surfaced before unless I have not seen it in the literature? Well, it was, his name did surface in the, French language literature some some years ago, and the codes and ciphers historian David Kahn wrote a, wrote a bit about him a few years ago. But but you're right, he's not he's not as well known as he ought to be, particularly given what an interesting character he is and what a extraordinary life he ha- had, <laughs> and the contributions he made to our side. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> yeah. The Polish codebreakers. Started early in the game, didn't they? And we should, before we even get into that, let's indicate why your book is titled X, Y, and Z, the real story of how Enigma was broken, because X, Y, and Z are not just letters, they actually refer to countries. Yeah, so Gustave Bertrand, who you mentioned, who was essentially the head of one of France's military codes and cipher bureaus, Bertrand's one was the one that bought and sold code books from uh, Spice. <laughs> and he decided when he put the three countries, France, Poland, and Britain together um, at the beginning of 1939, that sh- they should have cover designations. And so X was the French, Y was the, was the Brits, and, and, and Z or Z, as you would say in the US, um, was was the Poles. And uh, it turned out there were more letters in that in that alphabetical soup as well. But uh, that that was that was that was his 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 idea. And it would sort of somehow add a very thin layer of secrecy to the communications that were going between them. And you mentioned other countries adding to those letters. One obviously was America, which we can talk a little bit about. And obviously, I'm not covering this in a linear way, because the book is so full of information that I want to give people a sense of what it's about and telling a little bit about the story without it getting too sequential. What was fascinating, too, to me was that you had these Polish codebreakers who went and worked with the British, but initially were still in Poland and were facing great danger because the Nazis had occupied Poland. And that's a story in and of itself. But if you look at all the characters involved, both from the Polish side, the French side, the English side, and even the American side, from your point of view, who was the most important person in terms of the development of the code-breaking machinery? Well, or is it a mix? Let, let me try a certain amount of sort of chronological approach to this because uh, it, it may it may help answer your question and and sort of perhaps clear away some of the fog around this but i think it begins in about 1932 when a polish mathematician called marin Riewski 
was presented with a clutch of documents, including some that had been stolen by Hans-Thilo Schmidt from a famous safe in Berlin. And he was able, without having seen any wiring diagrams or anything really particularly useful of the German military version of the Enigma machine, to reverse engineer its wiring through pure mathematical analysis. And I think that's quite an astonishing achievement. Yes, that is a pencil and squared paper activity, but I still think it's quite an astonishing feat of imagination, and and it's probably the first of its kind in the 20th century. So Rievsky is sort of right up there in the Codebreakers pantheon, if you like. But it's all very well to figure out what the wiring is of an Enigma machine, but the security is not actually in the machine itself. It's in the way that it's set up. I guess people may not be aware of this, but there's 150 million, million, million different ways to set up your Enigma machine every day. And that's because there's three coding rotors that you have to choose from the box, which has got five rotors in it typically. Each rotor goes into a particular slot in the machine, so you've got a choice of which slots to put your chosen rotors into. Each rotor could be positioned in because they've got 26 letters of the alphabet around the rim so they can each be positioned in 26 different ways that gives you already quite a lot of permutations but then the real killer comes because the german military enigma machine had a thing called a plug board at the front of it which again swaps one letter for another one and with 26 letters of the alphabet and 10 cross-connection cables that adds some huge number of permutations, which again, it's, it's another 150 million million, I think is a different number of permutations you can get. You multiply all these things together, you get this fantastic astronomical number of different setups, which the Allies had to guess for every network that the Germans were using, and it changed every day, the setting. So th- this is a, this is a real, real challenge. So as I say, got a leg up with Ryevsky's reverse engineering of the machine. We know what the machine does, we know how it works, we know what its wiring is, but what we don't know is what the setting is being used every day. So Ryevsky and two of his colleagues who were called Henrik Sigalski and Jerzy Rzitsky sat down and invented techniques for figuring out what the settings were every day and that again is an amazing achievement because it's not just mathematics and it's also about engineering and it's also about figuring out that you're never going to try and do this by hand. You're going to have to have mechanical aids to help you sift through some of the possibilities and eliminate some of the improbable ones. And so they invented machinery to do that and that led to a machine called the Bomber, which they had designed and put into use by the end of 1938. They were able to use essentially these mechanical aids to figure out what the settings were on the on the Enigma machine. And once you knew what the settings were, then you could start decoding the, the messages. You know, you just type them into the Enigma machine just as if you were a German operator. <laughs> it's a fascinating... All the elements of this, and, and, in the, and this is all going on prior... Number one to World War II, and then during World yeah. War II, all of this is going on. Bletchley Park itself, I know there was a recent controversial 
article or two about the contributions of Bletchley Park. There was a gentleman named John Ferris who said that at least the title on the article is that it, the contributions were quote unquote overrated. What, what's your take on that? Well, I think what John Ferris was trying to say was that um, in the public imagination, somehow World War II was won at Bletchley Park. And if that's what people are saying, then they only need to sort of pause for a minute and realize that they've just said nonsense. Because World Wars are by people wielding pencils in in, uh, country houses in Buckinghamshire. Some people have to get out there and do the dirty work. And uh, we should, you know, we forget that at our peril. I don't disagree with that sentiment sentiment at all. And I personally get a bit annoyed when people tell me that Alan Turing was a World War II hero. Because, yes, all right, he had an important contribution and he, he would never have denied that himself. But he would have denied hotly the idea that somehow what he was doing was, you know, of a better class than those who actually had to go out there and, and do the actual fighting. And, uh, you know, it's it's it was the right job for him with his skills but uh he would probably have been fairly useless in uniform but the fact is that you know the the actual fighting isn't done by the code breakers um so i think i think that was really all that john ferris was trying to say it really comes back to your initial question which is how significant was the code breaking effort in terms of the outcomes of the war and i think most of the commanders would have accepted that by the time you get to uh, let's say D-Day, the Normandy landings, they were highly dependent on the information that they were receiving about German uh, order of battle and tactical intentions and so forth, which was gleaned directly from code breaking. In your writing about the Polish contribution to code breaking and their contribution to fighting World War II within that sphere of code breaking, Obviously, this is to me. It's a significant book because you were in 2020. You were awarded the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland for highlighting the role of the Polish in breaking the Enigma Code. Were you surprised that you received this award? Did you know about it ahead of time? Did the government of Poland contact you and say we would like to honor you with this? Oh, well, they they did, but uh, it was uh, a great surprise, and uh, and uh, I'm obviously I'm greatly honoured. I mean, you know, I didn't pick up a rifle, I didn't even do any code breaking, and I'm being given a medal. I think that's quite quite <laughs> quite quite the most extraordinary thing. So yes, I'm. Uh, uh, I mean, clearly, I think what they're trying to say by honouring me in that way was that it's good to have a story about the Polish contributions in World War II better known outside Poland. So I think in Poland, the achievements of Rievsky and the other Polish mathematicians are reasonably well known. But as you and I know, outside Poland, it's probably not the case. And I think all the glory tends to be uh, awarded to Bletchley Park, something which no doubt makes American co-breakers uh, smart a little bit, because it's not as if Bletchley Park was the only uh, only place during World War II where that kind of activity uh, happened. And, and by the time you get to the end of World War II, the number of American co-breakers far out, outstripped the number of people working at Bletchley Park. So. So, so this is a two-part question. Part one would be, based on what you're just telling me, 
What is it about Bletchley Park that captures the imagination, not only in England, but around the world, captures the imagination of people about that code-breaking activity versus the reality of other people, other nations contributing to code-breaking? Well, this is only an opinion, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a completely factual answer to your question, but my guess is that it's to do with the explosive way in which the information about Bletchley Park came to public attention in the mid-1970s. Everybody thought by the mid-1970s that the whole history of World War II had been sort of done to death and uh, there was nothing new to say about it. And the generals had all written their memoirs and everyone was heartily sick of them. (laughs) And then suddenly... What happens is that this revelation just bursts upon the public that in World War II, not only had there been a code-breaking unit uh, at Bletchley Park, but also that the volume and significance of the success of the code-breakers forced everyone to reappraise the whole intelligence story behind the the military successes. Almost to the point where, as you mentioned earlier, that we've sort of forgotten that the military achievements were actually done by soldiers. (laughs) Um, Boots on the ground, yeah. Not by co-breakers. But I I think that that, uh, coupled with a few sort of histories of some of the... Iconic individuals there, like like Alan Turing, sort of who was previously unknown to the public, uh, have suddenly sort of just essentially turned the spotlight right right around. And uh, I don't think in the U.S. you quite had that same sort of moment of revelation that 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 happened in the happened in the U.K. And so you know, once the headline has been grabbed by Bletchley Park, I'm sorry, but you know. It means that any other code-breaking agency that wants to have its have itself recognised is probably, you know, playing playing a bit of catch-up. I'm not sure the NSA ever wanted to, <laughs> 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 wanted wanted the kind of fame. But, um, <laughs> probably right. My my last and I think it's an important question. I saved it for the end. And that is, why did you decide to research this very interesting part of the code-breaking? of World War II. What brought you to the decision to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort writing this book? Well, probably the same reason that the Polish government was kind enough to give give me that honor, really. The sort of fairly simplistic story to date has been that Bletchley Park invented this amazing machine called the bomb. And, oh, yes, there was a little bit of sort of help they have from the Poles. But uh, what we'd like to do is to celebrate what Bletchley Park was all about and uh, you know isn't isn't that uh, a, a fabulous thing and and you know that's that's there's nothing sort of particularly wrong with that but why what what was this contribution that the poles brought to the party and how significant was it and who were these polish co-breakers and what happened to them and and all those questions were sort of like you know churning over in my mind and there didn't seem to be any readily available book that you could go to and find out the answers to these to these questions i mean there was there's bits and pieces in learned journals and and so forth which obviously i used as some of my source material but 
not for the general reader. It was just sort of as if Bletchley Park just magically happened on the 1st of September 1939. There it was, fully formed and, and churning out Enigma decrypts. <laughs> it wasn't actually quite like that. <laughs> so, you know, frankly, without the handover by the polls of everything they knew, with only three weeks to... Um, sorry, I've probably got my calculations wrong. It was only a matter of weeks before the... Uh, actual outbreak of World War II, the Brits would probably have been absolutely nowhere in the, on, the, on the Enigma story. Alan Turing wouldn't have been able to design his bomb machine, at least not anything like the speed that he managed to do it. So, you know, I think, I think there's a great debt that Bletchley Park owes to the Polish codebreakers, and it's, um, it was just a bit of a shame that nobody, nobody sort of focused on it and, and uh, wanted to tell the story before. Possibly that's because, you know, getting hold of the Polish source material, I couldn't have done that without help from a Polish-speaking research assistant that I had who was able to, you know, help me with the documents that I can't read. <laughs> and, um, and, and also, I was very lucky as well, because at the time I sort of mentioned to the GCH, then GCHQ historian that I was going to do this project, I was told that Bertrand's own archive was just about to be declassified in France. And so I was able to be one of the first researchers who was able to look at, look at that material. And that, and that was a wealth of interesting stuff explaining what the French role in bringing the Poles and the Brits together and, uh, and helping connect Hans Thilo Schmidt's spying activity into the code-breaking activity it was just I mean, you know it was just great great stuff so that all just happened very conveniently serendipitously just at the right time so. well i'm glad it happened so you wrote this book and that's a great way to leave it my guest has been dermot turing author of x y and z the real story of how enigma was broken published by History Press and available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Dermot Turing, go to DermotTuring.com. Dermot, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.